0: Saints, it's that time, man. Um, we're in such a festive time of the year that Cody saw fit to wear his nighttime clothes to our meeting. Does that make be a little bit?
1: Yeah, we're gonna,
2: <laughs>
0: we're gonna pray. the The one that walks among the um, seven menorahs of the New Testament Church is not offended by that. Uh, Why don't we pray and get started? Uh, who wants to pray? Okay, we're gonna have Rob pray. uh, Before we get into tonight, I have an email sign-up list on the board for Ruth, a romantic redemption story. Um, If tonight goes uh, around two hours, maybe three, we'll see. uh, It should be ten hours of audio teaching. You'll get in a link. Um, As of... uh, Saturday, there were 58 pages of 8 by 11 typed notes. It includes every chart, every list that I've given you. I'm starting to do this. It's not my habit to teach from notes, but I'm enjoying the fact that uh, since I can't remember where I put my keys a week ago, uh, we have a searchable database now. And uh, maybe in the years to come, you can laugh at what we didn't know and maybe enjoy something that, that we did know. Um so, Rob, you pray for us. We'll get into a uh, a review. We're actually going to pray more than once tonight uh, because I need the help. So, just pray to kick us off.
3: My God. Lord, we thank you that you still speak today, my Lord. Lord, that your arm is not short, Lord, that you're still working in us. Lord, we thank you for the wonder and the glory that you show us, even in your words. Lord, we thank you for our pastors and the, the revelation that you've given them that they pass on to us, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and we would see wonderful things in your law yes. Yes. Lord, that our eyes would, would see the wonderful things throughout your word, Lord. we ask that this word tonight will be able to be something that pierces and changes us, Lord God. Lord, that our perspective would not remain the same, Lord. Lord, we would have a new wonder, Lord God. When you fire within us to seek it out and search your word, and we would be diligent in seeking you, mighty God. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we ask that you would be with Eric as he teaches, Lord. Lord, you would cause his memory to to. to, to stand fast, Lord, God, Lord, that you would put your very words in His mouth, and that everything that you're trying to speak for everything that your Holy Spirit is revealing will come to pass, mighty God. Lord, we thank you. We ask that this place will be filled with your spirit, and that we would receive all the revelation and put it into practice. In Jesus'
2: name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Keith, come here. I want, I want you to do something. I was at a party with Keith the other night, and I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm still not quite in a serious mode. And uh, he did oh, yes. something with the first
4: chapter of Ruth. <laughs> yes. I
0: want you to hear this. I just thought this was special.
4: All right, so whenever I read this the first time, I couldn't help but think that it was uh, very similar to uh, the movie preview announcer guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know
1: what I'm talking about?
4: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so chapter 1, verse 1.
3: <laughs> in a world when judges
2: ruled, there was
4: a famine in the land. One man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a, for a while in the country of Moab. <laughs>
2: So it's incumbent upon every generation to look at
0: the text that is an ancient text and glean from it not only what the original audience did, but also what the text is speaking to you today. I'm suggesting that the book of Ruth is best viewed as a romantic redemption story. I have fallen in love with it. I think last week uh, we went a long ways to strip away some of the details and just look at the beauty of of the selfless, sacrificial love in the book. I wanted to start tonight um, with a concept that not everybody will be familiar with, so we're going to go slow with it. However long it takes, it just takes. If you start with the Hebrew alphabet, and you say alf or aleph, bet, gimel, gimel is the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It has a phonetic sound that's similar to a G, and... um, But unlike the G, it has a numeric value, and it also has a symbolic value. It looks a little bit like a foot. Uh, I want to show it to you. And it conveys gathering or walking as an idea. This is one of the few Hebrew letters that in Moses' day, uh, let me slide that so you can see it. In Moses' day, it is in the bottom right-hand corner. It looks a lot like a checkmark. Uh, today printed in books, it's in the top left-hand corner, it still looks very much like a shoe. So no matter how much they changed it, it still conveys the same idea. You can kill that, Pastor. The reason that that's important is when we're looking at a passage like uh, Psalm 119, which I couldn't help but notice that when Rob prayed, he prayed this way. If you look at Psalm 119, there's an acrostic in it. And the first stanzas fall under Aleph, the second under Beth, the third under Gimel. Well, Aleph has to do with a strong leader. Beth has to do with a house. Gimel has to do with how you walk something out. Do you remember in the second chapter of Ruth, while we were looking at it, Boaz said, look, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. In fact, in fact, pull out some handfuls. We call them secret stalks. And leave them for her to find. As we walk along this book tonight, I believe the Lord has secret handfuls of revelation for us. That if we're diligent and we ask Him to open our eyes, we'll see. Psalm 119, verse 17 and 18. Somebody read that. Do good to your
3: servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful
0: things in your law. So, in the Hebrew mind, under the topic of Gimel, looking at how do I walk, how do I halakha, how do I get life right, how do I carry out the commands of God, the first thing that we have to do is we have to open up our eyes and see the beauty of what God has already told us. A lot of people will look at the law, look at the Newer Testament instruction as well, And see restriction. They'll see things that they can't do. But those of us that are in love with it, you see the things that you're free to do. Uh, Some people read Genesis and say, they weren't allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What I notice in Genesis is, the first thing God said is, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Except this one. And in the word, I place freedom before restriction. Because that's what I see there. If you combine that, with the idea that Deuteronomy 29.29, 29, who can quote that one?
2: The things, the secret things. Oh, you got it, Chris. What, what you got, Chris? Things, secret things belong uh, to the Lord, but the things belong to us and our children,
4: children, so that we may obey His
2: command.
0: Amen, so that we may follow the, His words forever. Amen. Once God has opened your eyes to something, and you've discovered it as you're walking with Him, it now belongs to you and it's not a secret to your children. One of the reasons that we're recording these and taking copious notes and all the things we're doing is I now that I'm a grandfather, I want to leave something to my children and, and my children's children and yours too. So tonight, as we do this, we want to pray one more time Amen. that the Lord would open our eyes to what He has in this chapter. We're going to review slightly because... I want you to regain the tone of the book. And as we regain the tone of the book tonight, it all culminates in chapter 4. Jennifer will read it for us. It it really becomes beautiful. And I suspect that in a book that is contained within the Ketuvim, the writings, you're going to see serious prophetic elements because it was written by Samuel. And uh, you're going to find instruction for your daily life, how to walk, but you're also going to see a pattern laid down in it that will help us know what is coming, which is how Hebrews view uh, (laughs) prophecy. So one more time, Rob, pray that God would open our eyes. Almighty so, God, again, we cry out to you, Lord, that you would
3: open our eyes, Lord, that we wouldn't miss a thing, but we would see all the wonderful things that you have for us, Lord. Jesus, we love you, Lord. We want to see everything, Lord God. Lord, would you open our eyes that so we might see everything around us, Lord God. So that we would have clear vision. And we would have ayin tovah, Almighty God. Jesus, we love you, Lord. We don't want to back away from what you're showing us, Lord God. Lord, we don't want to miss any aspect of everything you've for us. Lord, would you help us to gather those secret stars Lord, Lord, those hidden treasures, those wonderful things that are in your law that you've left for us as gifts, mighty God. Lord, that we may claim them as our own, that we may pass them along to our children and our children's children, that we may obey you all the days of our lives and for generations to come. Mighty God, we love you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for revealing these secret things to us, Jesus. In your holy name we pray.
0: Amen. Amen. So confident that the Rock HaKodesh is going to illuminate to us what we need to know. We've already talked for more than two hours on chapter one. I just wanted to summarize a couple things from it. In chapter one, we saw Ruth rise out of tragedy. She proved her faithfulness well beyond words. She had companions that promised well, but they delivered poorly. Ruth both promised and performed what she promised. One of our takeaways from chapter one, which we had titled Clinging Resolve, was that at the worst time in life, It's often the moment that an entirely new light is needed and then seen. It's sometimes when things are the very darkest that you get good news. See, Naomi and the two girls in chapter 1 were hopeless, surrounded by death, but they got a good report from Israel. Isn't that exactly what happened to you in your life? Surrounded by death, but a good report from Israel gives you hope? Yes. It will require us to cling to what is revealed, just like it required them to cling to what is revealed. It will require resolve to finish what we started. Maybe the whole reason that we endure trials, just like they endured the trials of chapter 1, is to develop in us the character of salvation. That it's not enough, like Orpah, to promise well, but then not follow. You have to be like Ruth. That means... No matter how long the journey, no matter how hard the task, you have a clinging resolve. You could have titled chapter one, Love's Resolve. When you love someone, no matter what comes your way, you fight for what you now love. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen? Love's Resolve was exemplified in Naomi's resolve to carry on. It was exemplified in Ruth's resolve to cling to Naomi. Maybe the most beautiful undercurrent of the first chapter was the loving resolve of our God to work through the darkest circumstances to show His love to His children. Isn't that encouraging? Yes. Ultimately, this is a love story. We called chapter 2, Gleaning Response. In chapter 2, we saw Ruth experience McRae. Who can uh, describe what McRae was?
2: A, happenstance, a, random
0: occurrence. a chance happening, something that was divinely orchestrated. Another word that sounded very much like mikre was mikrah. Mikra, which these were successive strong's numbers, mikrah was a holy convocation, a, like a festival, a holy day to the Lord. And it seems that the mikrah, the holy convocations, lead to the, mikra, the uh the divine encounters of happenstance. Put another way, In chapter 2, we saw that when you rehearse, repeat, and relive God's plan, it leads you into chance events, divine happenings, and God's intervention. Coincidence has never been a kosher word. (laughs) Never. While growing in faithfulness, Ruth encountered the hero of our story. He was arguably seduced by her faithful devotion to others. Our hero, Boaz, initiates gifts of provision and security towards the beloved Moabite mistress. In Ruth chapter 2, we saw love's response to faithfulness. When Boaz saw the faithfulness of Ruth, he was attracted to it immediately. And ladies, that's still how we make ourselves attractive. In a day full of silicone and lipstick, faithfulness is still more attractive. There is no more attractive quality on earth than faithfulness. Love's resolve is exemplified in Ruth's desire to provide for Naomi. Naomi's constant loving advice to Ruth. And of course, Boaz's veiled affection disguised as provision and security for Ruth. That shows love's resolve. Love acts even if you don't know the outcome. That's what love does. We could have titled chapter 2, Love's Response, instead of a gleaning response. By the time we got to chapter 3, which was last week, which we called a threshing request, Naomi was lovingly selfless towards Ruth. She sought to solve three problems by making a loving request of Ruth. Number one, Naomi needed to know how do I maintain the name of Elimelech now that he's dead? How can I maintain the inheritance that was meant to stay within the family line? Number two. Number three was, how could I, or how could Naomi, provide security and rest for her faithful daughter-in-law? You know, that's an awful lot for a woman that thought that she was bitter and dried up and done. And you know what? In chapter three, she accomplishes all three. These three problems were all cured in Ruth's loving, selfless request of Boaz. So Naomi had a loving, selfless request of Ruth. Ruth had a request of Boaz. And we're going to see Boaz had a request of Ruth, which is why you could have titled this chapter Love's Request. When you look at the three problems that are cured in Ruth's loving, selfless request of Boaz, You see that she said, Boaz, will you consider me your amma? This was a Hebrew word that meant a concubine servant. A servant that was marriageable, but that had no rights. She could have asked anybody to marry her, of any age, of any social status. But she was willing to become a concubine without any rights. She also asked to come under the corner of his garment. In other words, she was saying, will you let me follow you as you follow the Lord? And we taught on the Zit Zit and you got to see that. Finally, she didn't just look for a husband. She didn't ask Boaz to become her husband. She asked Boaz to act as her goel. What was a goel? A kinsman redeemer. -redeemer. In other words, she wasn't asking for a husband alone. She was asking for somebody who would redeem the family name. Which was not her responsibility, the family land, which was not her responsibility, and Naomi, who was not her responsibility. But love does that, doesn't it? Yes. When you love somebody, you would make a request for their benefit, wouldn't you? When you look at Boaz's response, I love the loving, selfless request of Boaz. He looked right at Ruth and said, You know, Miss Ruth, I want to. I want to place integrity over passion. At the very moment that she is submitting to him and saying, I would be a servant, even a concubine in your house. I, uh, I want to follow you as you follow the Lord. He doesn't sleep with her. He says, you stay right there until morning. So many problems would be cured in the Christian community if we would learn to place integrity <laughs> over passion even passion that is godly but not timely, right? He asked that she go home to Naomi and trust that the Lord would work it out. He even sent a special Jewish code for her assurance. Do y'all remember the six measures? It's incredible. That's asking a lot of her. She's just effectively proposed marriage and he's saying, I want you to go home. You know, it was her job to go and propose Leverite. She was supposed to talk to the nearest kinsman, but he didn't let her. He did it for her. We'll get to that tonight. Thirdly, Boaz was sacrificial in that he was willing to do what the other man was not willing to do. And you wouldn't know that he was showing exceptional love to Ruth, Naomi, Malhon, and Elimelech if Ruth didn't let this play out. But he goes and offers the other man the chance to redeem her, and when he won't, then Boaz gets to stand up as an even bigger hero of the story, and do what the other man won't. Yeah. You know, that, that was a loving request. Tonight, we're going to title it, Redeeming Reward. But you might put in parentheses, Love's Reward. Because the truth is, sacrificial, loving actions always have a reward. If not in this life, and the next. So far in our studies... We've been instructed by the ancient laws of gleaning. Tell me about gleaning. Who can tell me what happens with that?
3: Leftover grain or grapes, produce, people can go
0: and pick up. If your field was square, which by the way they never were, but if it was, what are you not allowed to glean to the edge of? Because you have to leave something for someone else. No Israelite life was allowed to be selfish. You were not allowed to consider only what you could do for you. Everything that your life produced was aimed at having a portion for someone else. Period. The ancient laws of gleaning came into play in chapter 2. In addition to the ancient laws of gleanings, we look at the laws of leverite marriage, which we will review again tonight. But who remembers what is the Latin word lever uh, related to? Your husband's brother. It has to do with the responsibilities of a brother to carry on his family line. And we'll cover that again tonight. The biggest law that you're going to want to pay attention to tonight, that God put into place in ancient Israel that affects them, affects us, and your understanding of Revelation chapter 5 will be dependent upon, is the law of redemption. Jennifer, will you pick up in Ruth 4 and verse 1?
5: Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman Redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman Redeemer, I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, uh, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all of the people, Today are your witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malhan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town's records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those that at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Yeah. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the offspring of the Lord gives you by this one woman may be your family, be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a husband-redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. (coughs) This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abimei, abimadad the father of Neshon, Neshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David.
0: What an extraordinary thing. There are so many things that you have learned that you may not have put together yet. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to review it like this. Number one... You're going to find out tonight why this book ends with a statement about the family line of Perez, like what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? You know, you just don't know. Number 2, maintaining the name of the dead and sandalless transactions and those things. We have hinted about these things, you've read about them. If I had gave you a quiz and asked you to define right marriage, you could do it. But Learning how those things affect this story tonight is going to change the way that you read it forever. Learning the way that property is redeemed will change this story forever. Let's pick back up in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. You know, it's worth noting here that the opening line of chapter 4 says something more about Boaz's character. Do you remember what Boaz's name means? Yes. In him is strength, right? And he was called a giver ha'iel. Do you remember what a giver ha'iel was? Mighty a, a mighty man of strength and influence. In every way that the word can describe Boaz, it's admirable terms. Where, where, where he is seated is something like uh, a city hall and I, I'll show you that uh, Chris read Genesis 19:1 Justin Trister read uh, Deuteronomy 22 13 through 15 Lindsay read Joshua 20 4 through6 Genesis 191.
3: The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed
0: down with his face to the ground. See, the gateway to the city is where Lot was seated. This is because in ancient times, the gateway controlled whether you went in or came out. It controlled commerce. It's where you levied taxes. It's where your military outpost controlled things. To be seated in the gate or seated at the gateway was to be a city official. Where did Boaz go and sit down? He went and sat down at the gate. And he knew the kinsman redeemer would come by there. That says something about the caliber
6: of these men.
0: How about Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 15?
4: If a
6: man takes a wife and, after lying with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the girl's father and mother shall bring pr- proof that she was a virgin to the town elders of the gate. Now this is a rather personal
0: thing to bring to the town gate, isn't it? <laughs> the town gate is where you settled disputes, though. This is the city hall of the day. And if you had a ketubah, which was a marriage contract, and somebody had defaulted on their portion, and you didn't know that till the day after... Uh, they were wed you would go to the city gate which is where the officials were and you would bring proof of what had happened and i'm only saying that to say you know this is something like going to the clerk of court with with an issue going to a small claims court going anywhere that we would go in public to settle a dispute think about what boaz did with ruth he didn't run off into a corner do what he wanted and then ask society to accept it see Boaz took the issue that was personal, that was private, and he made it righteous and public before the whole world. He stood out front as love's reward and said, this is what I intend to do. And he let it bear the scrutiny of the rest of the town. That is entirely different than getting in the back seat of a car doing what you want than asking your relatives to accept it. That is entirely different. Showing up pregnant and saying, well, I guess now you got to. No, righteousness sake says, I want love's reward. Love always places integrity over passion. So before Boaz goes to bed with Ruth, Boaz goes to the city gate to make sure that that he has cleared all claims and is standing above board. That's
2: good.
0: How about Joshua twenty, verse four through
5: six? When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of the city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused, because he killed his neighbor unintentionally. And without malice aforethought, he is to stay in the city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home, home in the town from which he fled.
0: When we do a murder trial, we sequester a jury so that they're not influenced by the public. We sometimes close courtrooms. You know where a murder trial took place in ancient Israel? At the city gate. So picture Boaz, right? He can't wait for morning. He wakes up, still dark. Ruth, I don't want anything to happen to your reputation. Take these six measures, go back to Naomi. Where does he go? City gate. Could be somebody there arguing about whether or not they had a case of mistaken virginity. Could be somebody there wanting to kill someone else in an avenger of blood situation. This is the place of public uh, dispute settling. And he sits and he waits patiently. You ever been to traffic court? It's the hardest thing in the world to wait patiently. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how long it's going to take. Can you feel anxiety building in him? This took some kind of trust. Interestingly enough, in this passage, which deals with a goel, a kinsman redeemer, we see that the avenger of blood is to state his case at the city gate. The reason that I say that it deals with a goel is the word for Kinsman Redeemer and Avenger of Blood are the same word in Hebrew. Wow. Now, as we get into that topic, it's a very interesting thing. It might be where the DC Comics gets the idea of the Avengers. That comic book was originally created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who were both born under different names. Stanley Martin Lieber was Stan Lee's original name. He is a Romanian Jew born to immigrant parents. And Jacob Kurtzenberg, who obviously was also a Jew. The term revenge and avenge have a negative connotation in English, but in Hebrew they're entirely different. Let's put this on the screen. We covered this in the book of Joshua, but not everybody was there, and I want you to see it again. The term goel here, Strong's number 1350, Primarily means to redeem or to act as a kinsman redeemer. This is what Boaz is called. But if someone murdered your kinsman, your, your brother, your sister, and for righteousness' sake, you chased them, and they got to the city courthouse, which is the city gates, then you are there as an avenger of blood at the city gates. You're also called to go out. When you look at these in Hebrew, look at the way this works. On the left on the screen, you have a Goel with a Mem in front of it. Mem has to do with blood in the Bible. That's what it, it tends to represent, if not that, uh, chaos or uh, waters. On the right, you have Goel, and um, it is redeemed. Both words have a mem in them in this conjugation. Can you tell where it's at? It looks like an M. When you're looking at avenger, where is the mem? It's in the beginning. When you look at the word redeemed, where is the mem? See, whether or not you are a redeemer or an avenger depends on whether the blood comes before you or after you. That's interesting, isn't it? An avenger, you can turn that off, an avenger is somebody who, to do their job, must shed someone's blood. And it was God's desire. He said it in Genesis 9, capital punishment is godly. A redeemer is someone who, following a life, has blood that is shed to redeem the life. This is where Boaz is sitting where all of this would be happening. Is he there as an avenger? Is he there as a redeemer? Is he there with a dispute? Is he there to settle a dispute? In any case, no matter how you look at it, the fact that he is sitting at the city gate, and it's implied that's not an unusual thing, it puts him in kind of a position like a quasi-mayor. Is that a different way to view Boaz? Yeah. One of the reasons that I bring this up now is that Jesus is the supreme version of our Goel. In this situation, Boaz is acting to redeem, and the sacrifice follows the faithful actions and is applied at the end of the life. In the case of Jesus' return, he'll shed people's blood who do not walk out the strong teaching. He is an avenger and a redeemer. I want to read you something from Isaiah 63 without getting too far off of topic. The same word for avenger and redeemer. Listen to Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those treading the winepress? I have tread the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood (laughs) splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. When we think of Jesus, we don't think of him as an avenger of blood. We think of him as a redeemer, but he's both at his return the first thing that he does is cover himself in the blood of the rebellious nations that would not come to him. That is an incredible thing. How many of you are familiar with Revelation 19? Listen to this. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude shouting in heaven, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The avenger came before the Redeemer. If you skip down to verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, we're going to get back to Boaz here. I simply want to say how important a goel was. A goel was the person that righted the wrong in your family. He was also a person that could redeem wrongs done to your family. Can I tell you, we have a supreme goel. He will both right the wrongs that were done to you. And help redeem the wrongs that were done in your family. Amen. How you relate to His blood says whether or not you are an object that He needs to avenge or redeem. Very interesting, huh? You gotta love the Jews. Even the comics are godly in a manner of speaking. Let's get back to the city gates. Somebody, who's going to read? Rob, take uh, Proverbs thirty-one, twenty-three.
3: Proverbs 21, 23? 21.
0: Oh, 31. 30, 30. See, I asked a single man to read this. I so mean, you don't know nothing about <laughs> Proverbs 31. I asked every man to read
4: this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. Proverbs 31, 23.
3: Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now, let's talk
0: about this for a second. Come on. If Boaz had placed passion over integrity instead of the other way around, when he's sitting at the city gate with the other elders, can he hold his head up? Can he argue decisively about God's will, or does he have to hang his head because he knows he's not in God's will? Ladies, help the men in your life walk with integrity so that they can be the kind of men that would be respected at a city gate. I want to tell you the truth, a lot of it is in your hands. You know, there's a gas pedal in a car and a brake pedal in a car for a reason. Both are useful depending on the situation. Who wants to drive without either one? The truth is how a wife or a um, potential wife relates to the man in her life will determine whether or not he can hold up his head at the city gates. And men, don't you think for a minute you can put it off on the woman? Whose idea was it for her to stay down by his feet? It was Boaz. It is the man's responsibility to lead. And ladies, it's your responsibility to follow that good leadership. That way, the man that you end up wed to for an eternity, the one that you spend your life with, doesn't have to hang his head when he's around real men. You know, if you think your husband is an idiot, how do you expect other men to deal with him? If you view him as an incredible redeeming factor, a goel, then I suspect that that attitude will also carry over to the way that his friends view him. Make him a king at home and he will act like a king when he is abroad. If he's less than a king at home, What do you think he'll be when he's out of your sight? So, let's read verse 2. Then we can move right on. Amen? Who's got verse 2?
2: I would if I didn't have three more hours You know.
0: Sasha, is there a, a saying from a German theologian on the wall right behind your head? Wow. And that German was smart. Okay. Anti-Semitic, but smart. Right. Who, who's got verse 2? Boaz took
5: ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so.
0: Now, when you hear that, I know, we're only two verses in. You're like, eh, are we going to move on? No.
2: No, we're not.
0: You should know that by now. He He's seated at the city gate, which makes him a city... Official, a place of importance. Now, he's done something. Even though he's a man of strength, a man of integrity, and a man of importance, he does not take it upon himself to make this decision. You know what he does? He gets ten men. That's so interesting. In Judaism, when you have ten men, you have something called a minion. A minion, it's not the little fat orange dot that my kids watch on TV. A minion is recorded in the Talmud as having been derived from a Hebrew word called mene, which means to count or to number. And I don't want to put you through all of that. Let me just say that in both the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, which you will have in your notes, uh, emailed to you, we find passages like Leviticus 22, 32, which says, and I shall be sanctified in the midst of the congregation of Israel. This begged a question among thoughtful Jews. How many people does it take to make a congregation? (laughs) So they looked at all of the passages in the word, that say something like congregation or the assembly in numbers 14 how long shall uh, 27 how long shall i bear with this evil congregation right well how many were the congregation how many people does it take to constitute a community that was the question and it seems that because 10 spies dissented from 2 spies that the Jewish thought in both the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud is, God called them a congregation. He said, this evil congregation. So the smallest number they could find in the Tanakh, of people that constituted a congregation, was ten. Now, this leads to a beautiful line of thought. Nine of the most learned rabbis in the world are less authoritative in God's eyes than 10 garbage men who have assembled in the name of the Lord. That's awesome, isn't it? And the idea here is something very simple. If we get 10 people together who really love the Lord, we have a congregation. Even if they don't love the Lord, we have a congregation, just an evil one. If we have nine people, we have nine opinions. But at 10, something magical happens. At 10, the Lord presides over the congregation. That's the thinking. So Jews don't have prayer meetings unless there's 10 people there. Jews don't have Bible studies unless there's 10. It's very hard to start a a, a synagogue. (laughs) Right? What Boaz did is something that's consistent with later Jewish thought that's reflected in the Talmud. He wanted God's assembly to recognize his decision. So we got together ten men. Do you, with important (laughs) decisions in your life, seek out God's assembly to see whether or not your decision matches what God's assembly says? Or do you do whatever the hell you want to do (laughs) and then demand that the assembly accept it and dare them to say you don't belong here? See, here we have a really interesting choice we can do whatever the hell we want to do and go find the congregation who will accept it but then you have people that are just as committed to the hellish things that they do as you are
2: you'll find somebody
0: you'll find somebody there's a giant congregation of clowns on 59 you can go see anytime you want They'll probably, it doesn't matter what they'll do. (laughs) The point here is Boaz did not behave like that. Boaz seated in the most prominent place in Bethlehem as one of the most prominent men, sought out ten other prominent men, put them there, and then, then, got the other kinsmen so that they could discuss it. That's incredible, isn't it? Can I tell you, things that are worth doing are worth doing above board? They're worth doing right? If you have to sneak around in the shadows and the only person you can get to agree with you is your wife and children, something's wrong with you. And you're going to produce a wife and children that something's wrong. with. If you really have a revelation, go to Jerusalem and test it against the other leaders. If you really have a revelation laid out before the congregation... But most of the time, what we've done is something like place passion over integrity. We know it won't pass the muster of the congregation, but we also don't want to lose the favor of the congregation. Friends, you can't have both. And if you can, then you're in the wrong congregation. In Acts 15, verse 12 through 21, who will read that? Get it, Kyle. Steve Thomas, you're next. I miss you every time, ma'am. Throw up both hands next time. Acts 15, 12 through
1: 21. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said we should... Write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath.
0: You got it, huh? Listen, number one, when there was a dispute about how to handle circumcision, how to handle Gentile believers, verse 12 says, the whole assembly. They got them all together. Okay? Number two, when James speaks up, that is after Peter has spoken, Paul has spoken, Barnabas has spoken, and whoever were the other dissenters. Number three, when you read verse 19 and it says, it is my judgment, you can translate that opinion and I think it should be. It is my opinion, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, We should write to them. My point is, we are often looking for a singular point of authority that we can make happy or sad or whatever it be and know that if that one person is happy, sad, mad, glad, then we know how we should react. In Judaism, it's a community. A community of at least ten people. Now, let me tell you why that's the case. That's the case because any one man can be easily deceived. We've seen it through history. But for ten men to all be deceived, that would take serious wickedness. Mm -hmm. Boaz didn't go find his closest friend to agree with him. He got ten men that constituted the assembly of the Lord, and he laid the issue out before them. He got ten men plus himself, plus... Another kinsman redeemer. What's 12 the number of? God's government on earth. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Isolation is dangerous. It tends to lead to majoring on pet doctrines, self-intoxication, and then in the worst cases, self-deception. This is why usually those who are deceived work hard to separate themselves from the minion. They no longer want to be around the minion. Yeah. Instead, they hang outside of it and see if they can pick off members and build their own new group. Yeah. Cain's been... I mean, that spirit of Cain, that error of Balaam, that has been happening since Genesis 4. Mm-hmm. Cain went off and built the city. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to spend any more time on that other than to say, Boaz, who here is a type of Christ, is the opposite. Mm-hmm. He takes his decision to the congregation. Do you have a question?
6: Um with with the Baylum thing, so um one thing that I was having like a really difficult time understanding is that um in Deuteronomy if had mentioned that like Moabites were not allowed to do something in the Lord.
0: We're gonna cover that tonight. <laughs> cool. Tonight, that's awesome. That's Deuteronomy twenty three. We'll get that straight. Uh 'cause Moabites are not. This is something that Boaz is going to bring up, he brings up an objection. Um, I think it's probably good to suffice it to say that Revelation 1-3, which was the greatest revelation that the church was ever given, the revelation of Jesus Christ that he sent an angel to give to John, John didn't say, keep this for a private select few who will agree with it. There's two blessings in the book, one in the first chapter, one in the last chapter, that say you're blessed if you hear this. And put it into practice. Revelation was meant to be consumed by all. Yes. Amen. It was meant to have to pass the judgment and merit yeah. of all. Amen. Look at all of your New Testament epistles. Second Thessalonians 1 is a good example. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. He didn't write to the pastor to make sure the pastor agreed. <laughs> he wrote to the congregation and assumed that the pastor would agree. That's an incredible thing. How many pastors would, would allow that today? <laughs> the idea in the Jewish thought is something that we might want to regain. Yeah. That if you have a revelation, then it must pass the muster of at least ten people who also are capable of receiving revelation. That's good. That's good. Going to find nine teachers that agree with you is not the same as ten men who live with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's good.
0: Incidentally, Boaz being one, the nameless alternate redeemer being two, and then the other ten men, we're probably seeing that twelve people represents God's government on earth, which means if it passed the scrutiny of dominion, ten, man's government, and it passed the scrutiny of twelve, God's government, then you could know that both God and man recognize what is happening here is righteous. Can I tell you that's the idea behind a wedding? That is the very idea. Why, why can't we just say that we're married and run off? Because what you did in private, you can also put away in private. That's what. But he said he loves me. I know. What else will he say in a year, though? When it passes the muster of your peers and your God together, then you can know that you're standing on good ground. Do you know that is the basis for a wedding? It's why we don't accept common law as marriage. And Jesus didn't either. As one of our elders pointed out in one of our first elders meetings, when I was wavering on the subway, man, they got four kids. They've been together 14 years. Elder Charlie said, yeah. And when Jesus was standing at the well with the woman, he said, the man you now have is not your husband. So I'm so glad there's elders in this church. <laughs> I only regret that there's not ten. You people grow right in the Lord and there will be ten. Let's pick up in verse 3 and uh, read down through 4.
1: Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it.
0: (laughs) I love this. Boaz, whether he's being sly or not, I haven't figured out. I know he's about to go through the throat, though. (laughs) I think his heart probably hit a socks here. He's hoping the guy's not interested in the property, right? What's he going to go back and tell Ruth? What about that coded message that he sent to Naomi in the last? What would he do?
2: Yeah.
0: i seen more men get into, prob- into trouble because they promised something that they shouldn't have than they worry about delivering. Yeah. There's a, a loved one right now about to make the mistake of a lifetime with the little bit of life that he's got left. It's incredible. Think about Boaz's position right here. He's offered it. What is he hoping the alternative Redeemer says?
2: No. no.
0: But he doesn't. He says, I will redeem it. You know what this means? This means he had the financial resources to redeem it.
2: You
0: know what else it means? He is actually nearer in line. You know what else it means? In every technical sense, there's no reason for him not to redeem it. Wow. Of course, there are some laws regarding redemption. Let's go to Leviticus 25. <coughs> There, there, there. Steve there. Thomas. Leviticus 25, starting verse 23. Leviticus 25, beginning in 23. The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout
3: the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Mm-hmm.
0: If one of your fellow Israelites become poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay,
3: What was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee.
0: It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. Now, we could teach about the year of Jubilee for a long time, and we don't have time. Suffice it to say that when Peter was preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he spoke about the restitution of all things. That is the Jubilee. Hmm. There is a day when no matter what the debts are, no matter what the slavery situation, no matter what happens... God will declare them all null and void because this was his property, including you, Mm -hmm. to start with. And he will redeem it. But I bring this up to say something interesting about the alternative kinsman. Do you like him?
2: No. That's interesting.
0: (laughs) And the single man shouted the loudest about the suitor. No, we don't like him. No rivals. I didn't like him either. And uh, I had a lot of reasons for not liking him, but they were mostly because it brings out something in us. When you, you've already fallen in love with Ruth, and you want Boaz. I went to bed the other night excited for Boaz. Last, <laughs> last uh, Monday night, like, I was like, go ahead, Boaz. This is, this is awesome, man.
2: <laughs> and the
0: idea that somebody's going to come in and squirrel that deal is just, Yeah. Men have fought over things, haven't they (laughs) had? But I want to tell you, this kinsman redeemer is not a bad guy. He recognizes that this land belongs to God, that God has put it within a tribe, and that it's supposed to stay in the tribe, and so he wants to buy the land. I want to clear that up. It's his right, but it's also his obligation. And he's willing to do it. He's willing to (coughs) meet his obligation. Y'all say that way. He's willing willing to meet 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 his his obligation. obligation. That's important as we move forward because I think it's missed. The men have the duty to keep the property within the tribal allotment. The land is not theirs. It's God's, and they're only stewards of the land. Apparently, the alternate kinsman-redeemer understood this and wanted to keep the land within the tribe. Now, that takes us to our Plot twist. How did Boaz feel when this happens? He's probably upset. The whole arrangement could ruin his plans and destroy what he feels like he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. When you try to go above board and you bring it before the church and you make the terrible mistake of telling your pastors and elders what you're thinking of doing <laughs> and you get pushback, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. See, Boaz still trusted God, though. In the midst of this, he doesn't pull the sword. He doesn't stomp away and run off somewhere with her. He stands his ground. Find some other church, I don't know, in the north. He stands his ground because he trusts his God. Watch this. Verse 5. Who's got verse 5?
3: I got it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow
0: in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. You could get the impression, Tabo, that Boaz had read Deuteronomy 23. Because he mentions the land, but he doesn't mention the Moabite. And he sure didn't mention that the Moabite was a leverite situation. So do you want the land? Are you willing to do that? Oh, yes, I'm willing to do that. Well, there are at least two other things you're going to need to consider. (laughs) This is why it was important that we study some of the other things we did. Let me help you and walk you through it. Boaz is not pulling any punches here. He's implying two issues that it would be prudent for his alternative to consider. Number one, there is a Moabite involved in this situation. In the same law that says you need to redeem property, also tells you some things about Molvites. And we'll read that in just a second. The second is, it is a Leverite law situation as well. In other words, it has to do with a dead brother's <laughs> widow. Let's pick up in Deuteronomy 23.3, tavo.
6: No Amorite or Moabite no right may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to
0: the tenth
2: generation.
0: Oh, no! Mm-hmm. Ten generations! That's a long time, huh? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, this troubled me. Like it troubled Tavo. What are we going to do with our little Moabite mistress? She's not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. <laughs> It'd take a very special Israelite to be able to look past that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Apparently, Boaz knew that the alternative kinsman might not be able to look past it. It's a significant hurdle. The Word says you cannot bring this Moabite <laughs> into the assembly of the Lord. You know, I was reading Matthew, which happens to be an ancient Jewish work. And uh, in the first chapter, in the fifth verse, I found this. Salmon, the father of Boaz. What's the next line? Anybody there? His mother was whose mother was, who was Boaz's mama? Yeah,
4: right. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so Boaz's mama was not just a Canaanite. What else was she?
2: Ros- Come on, Ros- good church people. Ros- 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 was she? Ros- yeah. Ros-
0: you know, people people <laughs> wonder how could Rahab have lied and still be considered faithful. How could Rahab have done that? Christian ethics are such a funny thing. The New Testament calls her a prostitute three times, never calls her a liar
2: once. <laughs> I'm a ho. <hope>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> While you're thinking about this subject, going back to about Boaz, what did he have to overcome in his life? His mother was once a prostitute. His mother was a Gentile graftin. That's crazy. But he still rose to a place of honor, didn't he? Are you sure that your greatest problem in life is that you were disadvantaged? You're of the wrong race. Your skin's too white, too brown, too black. Are you sure that's the issue? It's not that your character sucks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I wonder if God didn't bring Boaz along with a great love for his mama, so that he didn't have any problem looking at that Moabite and going, I know that the law says that, but it also says some other things. Mm. Let's look at some of the other things that it says. <laughs> Boaz's own mother had once been a part of the people of Jericho, but she fled the destruction of her city, the futility of their gods, and she clung to the people of God. Could it be that this is one of the many reasons that Boaz was so impressed with Ruth? They say men marry their mothers. It's not particularly true in my case, but... After all, if Rahab proselytized herself, is she still a foreigner? Well, it's a question of halakha, isn't it? By the way, did anybody notice the verse above the one that Tavo read? Deuteronomy 23.3 is what Tabo read. Said God's not going to suffer a Moabite into the generations. What's verse two say?
3: No one born of a forbidden marriage,
4: nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth
0: generation. Now let's get this straight: no Moabites and nobody of a forbidden marriage. That's a really polite way to say it. Literally, uh, Young's literal translation says nobody born of whoredom. <laughs> Don't know what that is, but ask somebody who's older than
2: seven.
0: <laughs> the Hebrew here implies anyone born of an illegitimate marriage is not allowed for ten generations. Which takes us back to the Gospel of Matthew. Y'all turn with me to Matthew, the first chapter. Who's going to read this time? Yeah. Nolan, Nolan. Start in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez. Judah's the father of who? Perez. Okay. Keep going.
3: And Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. and
0: Jesse, You can the father stop there. Obed's the father of Jesse. Does anybody remember the story story of Judah and Perez? Because it involved the Levirate situation before there was even a law. Right? Uh, Cassidy, why don't you read Genesis 38 and start in verse 6 while we're examining Boaz and the alternative kinsmen and what may have been going on in their minds, in Tavo, how on earth we get a Moabite into the lineage of Christ.
5: Genesis 38,
0: verse 6. I'm going to warn you, what we're about to read is both graphic, disgusting, and good beyond belief. Now, if like me, the uh, those words don't normally go in the same sentence for you, then just look at the smile on my wife's face. She knows that something good's coming. Wow.
2: Go ahead. <laughs> Judah got a
5: wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tabar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Can
0: we say he greatly erred? <laughs> 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 then Judah
5: said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law.
0: What do we call that? Leave right. Leave right. Okay, keep going.
2: To produce offspring for
0: your brother. Hey, why does he lie with her? To
2: produce offspring for
0: Why does he lie with her? To produce offspring for your brother. Oh, okay, okay, keep going.
5: But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled a semen on the ground to keep from producing
4: offspring for his brother. What he
5: did was wicked in the
0: Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. See, Ur was wicked, and he died leaving Tamar childless. Onan used Tamar sexually without the intent of providing her with a male heir, and his dead brother with someone to carry on his name and property. When Shelah came of age, Judah did not give him to Tamar as a husband. So this left Tamar in the position that she tripped Judah by pretending to be a prostitute, and she eventually gives birth to Perez. What you read in Matthew 1, 3 through whatever, was Perez is the great, great, great grandfather of Boaz. Boaz came from a line that was illegitimate, because Perez was born outside of wedlock. At least for a time it would be illegitimate. Boaz was the son of a foreign woman who proselytized. Boaz was the seventh in the line that was delegitimatized until the tenth generation. Doesn't that beg the question, who was the tenth generation? Doesn't it? Yes. If we start with Judah and we count one to Perez and then two... To Hezron and three to, and we keep going, Boaz is seventh. understand when Boaz is looking at this Moabite, he's already from an illegitimate land. he's illegitimate because his great-great-great-grandfather did something wrong. he already has an affection for a Gentile proselyte because his mom was a proselyte that was a prostitute. <laughs> Going back to Matthew 3, let's put this on the screen. Matthew 1, verse 3. Somebody read in verse 3? Judah, the
3: father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Keep going. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon son, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Yeah. The
0: tenth what? in the line was David. Wow. So consider Boaz's uh, predicament. He doesn't know David's coming, does he? Mm-hmm. But he knows that he's already an illegitimate line for at least three more generations.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe
0: he thought... The little Moabite was worth extending the illegitimate time for a while. Now, the question is, did God accept her as a proselyte, or was she still a Moabite? See, because it's an interesting thing. While she's still in Moab, what does she say? Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. she actually invokes the name of Yahweh and says, uh, Entreat me not to leave you. And she uses the name of the Lord to, to do it. Apparently God accepted her conversion so that she was no longer a Moabite because after Boaz we get Obed, then Jesse, and then King David. Have you ever wondered why? If God wanted King David as king, why did we have Saul? Mm -hmm. Apparently David wasn't old enough yet. He's still a young boy. And Israel wants a king before their time, just like so many men who want a wife before that night. Men, the results are always disastrous. But if you could just place integrity over the lust of your own heart, what is God working in the background to bring you? See, Boaz knew that if he acted faithfully, no matter how illegitimate he looked, God had already shown him he would prosper. He himself was illegitimate but he had risen to the city gates.
2: Mm-hmm. He
0: was somebody whose name meant God's strength is in me. Mm-hmm. He was somebody who was called a giver high a mighty man of influence. Apparently he believed that when you act faithfully, even if you are the product of unfaithfulness, God will work it out. Amen. Amen. So he wasn't scared to look at the Moabite and wonder whether God was doing something people wouldn't understand. But that didn't mean that he ran off to do it. He drug it right to the city gates, and he stood on the courage of his conviction and said, this is what I intend to do. And he fought in the arena of revelation and idea and prevailed. What are we going to do with cowards that run off in dark corners and get what they want for a time? Well, they won't make it in the kingdom. Ten generations it took. Now, are you ready for something much better than that? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, good. that now, that's pretty good. Yeah. But it gets much better than that. On you, on hmm. No matter how bad you think your situation is, the Lord is working to bring about righteousness for the faithful. Uh, who's going to read? Joyce, take Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10. Keith, Ezekiel eighteen one through 2. And uh, Justin, Trister, Ezekiel eighteen twenty through 23, Judah, Psalm 101, in verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10.
5: Note, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love
2: to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep
5: His
0: command. Hey, what is the requirement in this verse? Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is a faithful God, keeping His covenant of what? Love. love. Can I tell you that's not some New Testament covenant? He's speaking about the Mosaic revelation and He calls it a covenant of what? Love. And how long will He keep that covenant? A thousand
2: generations.
0: And what is the only requirement for that? That they love Him. Maybe Boaz was thinking about a covenant of a loving God. Maybe Boaz was wondering how to wrestle with Deuteronomy 23, and he brought it before the elders to see what they would say. You know, we're reading a summary here. Okay, how about Ezekiel 18 in verse
4: 1 and 2? 18, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. See, the reason that
0: I am the way that I am, you know what never follows that statement? Mm -hmm. See, the reason that I am the way that I am, you know what you never hear after that? It's It's because I suck. (laughs) (laughs) What you always hear is it's somebody else's fault. Mm -hmm. Whatever was a disadvantage to Boaz became an advantage to him as he was faithful to God. OK, he could have sat back and said, because Tamar became a prostitute and tricked Judah and my great, great, great grandfather, Perez, was born illegitimately, my life is just going down the toilet. But he didn't. He was not that kind of man. OK, now watch where it goes. Ezekiel eighteen twenty. 20.
6: The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father. Nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed, and keeps all my decrees, and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live? What does God want? What was the purpose of the law?
0: To confront people with wicked ways so that they would turn from them and live. Can we honestly say that that's not what Ruth is doing? Not what Boaz's mother, Rahab, did when she showed a faith without a gospel being preached? It's incredible, isn't it? How about Psalm 101, verse 6? And then we're going to go somewhere that will blow your mind. I mean, in 1986, some Russian Jews found something that is just, it's going to bring life into you, I promise. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walk, whose walk is blameless will minister to me. Who's got the Lord's eyes? The faithful, of the, land. the faithful of the land. Boaz believed that no matter what his situation was, if he was faithful to what the Lord was showing him, he could... Meet with the congregation of God and God would preside over his own congregation. When you say, hey, I know this church is amazing. I know it's God. and Look, we're going to be here forever. First off, we usually know that that means you're going to leave in a few weeks. Yep. Wow. The second thing that we know is although you're saying that now, the first time that we tell you not to do something or that you disagree with a decision, you will then turn and say it, it may have once been a great church but now it's not. Run off and do whatever you want to do. Boaz was not that kind of man because Jesus is not that kind of man.
2: Amen. That
0: is not the character that the Bible is producing. The character that the Bible is producing says if God told me to be here It is a great church, and I'm going to stay here and trust that God will work it out. Cowards that run to their own corners will not make it in the kingdom. Have I said that enough for you tonight? (laughs) Okay, I do want to make sure you get it. My point here is that Boaz, like most family lines, had its problems. The man who acts faithfully will never be put to shame. Boaz could have been ashamed of his prostitute mama, but instead... It was turned into a blessing because he looked at Ruth differently than everybody else did. Boaz could have been ashamed to come from Perez's line, but instead he became the great-grandfather of King David. What will the Lord of all the earth do for you if you remain faithful? Listen. You know what needs to follow the, well, the reason I am the way that I am is? You, you, I'm just going gonna, gonna to answer it for you. Everybody in the room, nobody excluded, not one of you, because you're unfaithful. That's what let's, let's just come to terms with it. If there is anything that is not praiseworthy or meritorious in your life, it's because you're unfaithful. But if you are faithful, there's nothing that you cannot overcome. Okay? Just to bless you. <coughs> About the Lord's plan, about His ultimate sovereignty, I want to prove to you beyond all doubt that the Word is inspired and that God is working in ways that you would never understand behind the scenes just to bless you. Not just the Word is inspired, that God breathed onto the page every single letter. It's what theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. You could go your whole life and never have seen proof of that. I'm going to show it to you right now. Is that good? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or would you all right? Yeah, just quit? I mean, we'd no, go no, join no, the United Methodist no. Church. and no. You know, they're offended by the word blood. They took it out of their hymnals. Wow. It's all right. God has respected their opinion. Not one of them will make it into the heavens where they sing about the righteous blood of Jesus. Yeah. So, okay, uh, let's do this. What you're looking at here is the Hebrew text of Genesis 38. And in Genesis 38, if you start on the top right-hand side of the screen, and you oh, wow. count every letter, when you reach the 49th letter, you get to a bet. Because Boaz starts with a bet. By the way, 7 times 7 is... 49. 49. In Hebrew, to say seven times seven is like to say infinite, right? The perfect truth behind Genesis 38, which is the story of the ugly line of Perez, is that 49 letters into the text, you get to the bet. 49 more letters, you get to a yod. 49 more letters, you get to a Zion. It spells Boaz at a 49-letter skip hundreds of years before Boaz is there. Hmm. Because God knew when Judah and Tamar got together and produced Perez that although the line was illegitimate, God was going to do something with it. Is that good? Yes. Yes. You want it to get better? Yes. If you keep counting, you get to forty nine more letters, still in the exact order. No way. The text spells Ruth. Wow. What is that? A resh, a Bob, and a hay?
2: That's crazy. Each <laughs> with forty nine letters
0: between them. It doesn't just say Boaz. It says Ruth. You going to get better than that? Let's go forty nine more letters. It says open. Are you impressed yet? Yes.
3: Yes. I mean, what would it take to
0: impress you?
2: <laughs>
0: Moses is writing this. Moses is writing Genesis thirty eight. Moses. And these people came after Moses' lifespan. Say Listen, if Moses is writing and he misspells one word, yeah. Yeah. this doesn't work. Would you like to be further impressed? Yeah. After Obed, 49 more letters. Yes, Jesse. No. Yes, you Jesse. You can't make this up. ridiculous. Are you impressed? Let's keep going. 49 more letters we get David. In each letter of David, 49 letters in between them. What does God say? In the midst of your chaotic Jerry Springer-like life, (laughs) He is working to bring about the redemption of your family line. Amen. David is the 10th generation. He's the one that legitimatizes the whole line. The reason that we call Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah and of the failure of the line of Perez is because of David. See, here's what you may not be grasping. We tend to zig when we should have zagged and think it's now screwed up so bad that it can't be fixed. My life just sucks now. No, God is working. And if you will be faithful, He will be faithful. And if it takes ten generations, He doesn't quit. He doesn't quit when you're dead. He'll work in the lives of your children. But He will bring about redemption. He'll make the whole family line whole. Let me do two things here. Number one, you see it again, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. 49 letter intervals in chronological order. That means he knew what their mamas and daddies would name them on the eighth day. The second thing is, in your notes, since I don't do bibliographies, that's the source. You can think Daniel Mickelson, who wrote Codes of the Torah in 1987. It's a group of Soviet Union and Eastern European Jews that found this, okay. And again, that'll be in your PDF. We're good here, Wade. Wow. Would you like to go further? No. You all bored? No. Am I wasting your time? No. Okay, I want to make sure you weren't going to go back to the Baptist church. Never. <laughs> <laughs> In the Hebrew text of Genesis 38, which is the story of Judah and Tamar birthing Perez, the names Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David, all appear with a seven times seven letter skip. And they do it in order. Yahweh is always at work in ways we are only beginning to understand. Now let's deal with the second reason that Boaz suggests that an alternative kinsman may want to carefully consider his actions. The first one was she's a Moabite. But we see God can work through family lines to work that stuff out. The second one is this line from verse 5. On the day you do it, you'll acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. This alerted the alternative kinsman to a duty that went far beyond purchasing the land. What was his duty? Okay, let's read this just to uh, refresh ourselves. J.J., read Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, where we learned what a Levirate does. <clears throat> as good as that was, you're about to find something I think's even better. Deuteronomy 25,
4: 5 through 10. If brothers are living together... One of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother in law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Oh my However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him, if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her. His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unclean." Now, is that incredible?
0: And yet, all of those things did not happen in this story. Which is a major clue to we're missing something. Was he willing to buy the land? Yes, yes. And you didn't like him. But he honored God enough that he would have bought the land. When he found out that she was a Moabitess and that it's a Levite situation, he backs out. What were the obligations of a believer right? First, he had to be a near kinsman. Was the alternative kinsman a near kinsman? Mm-hmm. Yes, nearer than Boaz. Secondly, he had to be willing. Thirdly, he had to be able to produce a child. The alternative kinsman had to meet these three requirements. When you look at his response, you might be able to make a few observations. Verse 6, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. I searched all of the commentaries just like you do. You know what I think about most of them. I cannot do it. This could mean that he already had a wife and that it would damage his estate domestically but I don't think that's what it means. It could mean that he already had children and that having to have another child by another woman and then subdivide his estate after his death would cause problems, but I don't think so. The most specific function of a lever is to have a child with the dead man's relative. I'm sorry, with the dead relative's wife. My own opinion It's that for one reason or another, the man knew that he couldn't produce a son. Why did Onan get struck dead? He refused to to produce a son. What happens if this kinsman redeemer knows that he can't produce a child and he marries Ruth? How might God view that? If you can remove the idea that you don't like the guy, (laughs) which I admit, it's hard. It leads us to something that's beautiful. He is, in fact, a kinsman. Technically, he should be able to redeem the land. He is certainly nearer than Boaz by Boaz's own admission. So what does nearer mean? It means he came first, right? What becomes beautiful about this is his only disqualification then is that he's not able to bring forth life. It reminded me of Romans seven twelve. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Then you get to Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Boaz, I mean son. What this means is that the law was a nearer kinsman To redeem the family line, but unable to produce life. And so a better kinsman showed up that both met the qualifications and could bring life. This doesn't make the first kinsman bad. It makes him weak when compared to Boaz. Oh man I think that's better than you understand it to be. He is like the law. He meets all of the righteous requirements and should be able to redeem but because of human weakness he does not produce life. With that in mind Hey what was that first letter that we looked at today? Gimel. Gimel. The alphabet Gimel the first letter wa- that we looked at was Gimel and it had to do with how you oh. With that in mind, look at verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Why didn't somebody spit in his face? because he wasn't doing anything wrong, he's actually being honorable in acknowledging that he can't bring forth life.
2: Yeah. Wow.
0: Now what does it mean to take off your sandal? Deuteronomy 25.9 adds that you're supposed to spit in his face. I think that it was omitted because there was no shame in his inability. It's not so much that he couldn't aim at righteousness, he just couldn't bring it to life. He yielded his sandal to the one who could walk it out because he was unable to halakha in true righteousness. Like Orpah, he initially promised what he was unable to deliver, but praise be to Yahweh for a greater kinsman redeemer. It's like the law took off its sandal and said, the sandal fits, the sandal is right, but human weakness is keeping this from being walked out right. Mm-hmm. You are a perfect example. Yeah. You walk it out for us. Oh, wow. Wow. Tell me that's not beautiful. <laughs> Would you like to talk about your sandaled feet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a principle in the Word called expositional constancy. I woke up the other morning with expositional constancy on my mind and I... <laughs> I know, the things that keep pastors awake. Expositional constancy means that if a dove shows up as a symbol of the Holy Spirit in one chapter and then in another chapter, that by the time you get to the third example, that might also be a dove because of expositional constancy. It's another way to say hermeneutics. But the point here being that God is writing this. It's not a man's sermon. We're not worried about... um, a man being expositionally constant, what we're trying to discover is how does God view sandals in the Bible? Can I tell you God has a lot to say about it? Yep. It's kind of Christian chunkless, right? <laughs> you ready? Here are seven examples of how God views sandals in the Bible. Judah, Exodus three five. Sam, Luke 15.22. Chris, Ephesians 6:15. Abimbola, Deuteronomy 29:5. Lynn, take uh, Exodus 12:11. Nick, take John 1:26. Justin Triester, take Deuteronomy 25 and verse nine to bring it back home. Ready. Go ahead, Judah. Do not come any closer. God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The first thing you need to know about your sandals is they represent your walk. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that happens when you meet the Lord is you realize your walk will not cut it. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that I've always loved the Lord and then I just fell in more in love with the Lord, you still don't know it. No. If you didn't come to a place where everything <laughs> about you was deserving of punishment... If you didn't come to a place where you were so grossfully inadequate in your walk that God himself said, take those off or you cannot come near me, then you haven't met him. You've been around him. You might know what others say he looks like, but you don't know. Because the first thing that happens when a man comes into contact with the holiness of God is he realizes he is holy and I am not. And something must be done. So the principle of expositional constancy starts with your need to unsandal your feet because you can't walk it out. Yeah. Let's take Luke 15, 22.
1: Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet.
0: The second one that is so beautiful is when you unsandal your feet because of the unworthiness of the walk, the Father will restore His own sandals to your feet. See, if you will take off your wicked ways, He will put on His righteous ways. But if you love your wicked ways, if you will not unsandal your feet, you don't get to wear His shoes. Whose do you want to walk in? (laughs) I love that the alternative kinsman just acknowledged it. You, Redeemer, I can't do it. And Boaz walked over and said, I will redeem her. And then did. Because the story's already full of people who promised and couldn't, just like churches. Churches are full of people who have promised, but they don't do it. I would rather the man that hates himself and loves God than the man that loves himself and hates God. Can't tell you how many... I meet in the wrong category. Let's take, verse, uh, let's take our third one. Ephesians 6.15 And with
4: your feet fitted with the readiness
3: that comes from the gospel of peace.
0: When God restores sandals to your feet, when He gives you a right walk, the first way that it shows up is you want to build those sandals with the readiness of the gospel. Yeah. You are reading the Word to instruct your walk. Don't you think it's a strange thing to compare shoes to gospel readiness? And Paul does. Where did he get the idea? Because of expositional constancy. Throughout the Word, sandals have to do with the way you walk with God. And so he's telling you, Christian soldier, if God has put on your feet His restored shoes, you better put the right kind of tread on them. Put the Word of God on them. Do it again and again and again. Readiness comes from the preparation of the Gospel. Alright, let's take our fourth one. Deuteronomy 29.5
4: During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals or your feet.
0: Lord, you restored me. I'm preparing my feet with the gospel, but I just don't know if it'll be enough. It'll be enough. It'll be enough. It'll never wear out. It doesn't matter how attacked. It doesn't matter how hot the sand. It doesn't matter how difficult the terrain. They will never wear out. You'll wear out, but they won't. Amen. Uh, Exodus 12.11, our fifth one.
1: Exodus 12.11, this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand.
0: It turns out that those that have a restored walk with God, those who are prepared in the Word, those that know that their walk will be enough because of what God is doing, must walk without any attachment to where you are. All attachment is to where you are going oh listen to me saints that's killed most when God puts sandals on your feet it is because you are leaving somewhere and going somewhere and you have to be more attached to where you're going than where you're leaving or you'll never get there Orpah oh I'll go I'll go where is she today she fell off the pages into oblivion where is Ruth today What's the difference? They both promised, but one put her sandals on and went. The other went home. Okay, John one twenty-six
3: through 27. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie.
0: Why on earth would the prophet who announced Jesus get to talking about his sandals? He's saying there's only one that has set such a perfect walk, yes. such a perfect standard, that I'm not even fit to hold his sandals. I'm not him. Wow. I am telling you about him. Yes. Could we could we learn from that, saints? Yes. Too often in today's hyper greasy grace environment, right. we lift up a man and say, if you could just do it like me, then you too would be a carnal pig <laughs> flying around in a jet. That's not what they say. They say, you'll be godly. The point here is, real men of God don't do that. They say, He is so holy and I am still so far from Him that I'm not worthy to carry His sandal, but I'm walking in that direction. See, that's a real difference between a man who is encouraging your faith and a man who is encouraging your faith in Him. I wish that we didn't see that so much. If I look back on my Christian walk, there's been way too much of that kind of stuff, both when I was sitting in your chair and standing in this place. Mm -hmm. It's wrong. It is wrong. We do not encourage faith by our great exploits. We encourage faith by His great character.
2: Okay,
6: uh, number seven. Deuteronomy 25 and verse nine. His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line.
0: A goel is an avenger if blood comes before and is a redeemer if blood comes after. Your sandal, your walk, if it is a renewed walk in the Lord, then you are married and your family line changes. If you do not get a new sandal, then you are a family of the unsandled with spit in your face and shame on your family lineage because you're married to <coughs> a dead guy forever. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you hear the difference?
2: Yeah.
0: Expositional constancy means that when we look at this sandal, you have to see it as something. If she does not receive the new sandal, then they are the family of the unsandled and she is dead forever mm. and there is spit in the man's face that couldn't redeem her. That's right. But if she receives the sandal, then she has a new walk and is going on to a new life with God. Now, there's something even prettier than this. We'll get to this later in the list of seven, but I can't help but tell you now. This was her job. Deuteronomy 25 says, Ruth is the one that's supposed to go do this. Jesus did for you what you can't do. Yep. Yeah. And he sent that code to Naomi last week that said six measures. And she said, uh, this means he won't rest until it's done. Jesus won't rest until he's restored you and your family. And what the law required you to do, he did for you. Uh, Start in verse 9. Then Boaz. Somebody. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I've brought bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Chilion and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite. Oh come on what's another word for acquired? I have redeemed, I have purchased, I have bought. Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow as my wife. wife. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property and so that his name will not disappear from among the family or the town records, today you are witnesses. This is just like Jesus purchasing a bride, restoring Israel's name. Revelation 5 is when he redeems the land and it's going to happen. See, Boaz didn't just marry Ruth. He redeemed Naomi, Malchon's name, Kilion's name, in Elimelech, who named, whose name is God is my king, redeemed his name. This one act brought life out of
2: death.
0: Oh, come on, that's prophetic, isn't it? Earlier I showed you how Perez was the beginning of an illegitimate line that was legitimatized in the tenth generation when David came. If you start with Adam and count the generations of men... You're going to notice the first always starts something, and the tenth always does something else. Redeems it. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Adam started the human race, Noah redeemed it. Shem starts the Semitic peoples. You go all the way down. Abraham is the beginning of the redemption of the Semitic peoples. Isaac starts the line of the promised son. Boaz redeems the line of the promised son. Come on, do you think maybe God's got a plan? Define their names sometimes, it gets even better, but we don't have time for that tonight. You can kill that, Pastor. We're going to have to wrap this up soon, and there's a lot more to go. So somebody read verse 11. The elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. Hey, I just got to tell you, prophetically speaking, all Israel is going to see what Jesus does. All Israel, they're all witnesses. Keep going. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and
4: Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you have the standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem.
0: Hold oh, there. We can't go back and reteach it, so let me remind you that it was in the field of Boaz that the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. It was in his field. It was in the field of Boaz that sacrificial lambs were raised for temple sacrifice. So when we're talking about all that's going to happen and famous in Bethlehem, it stayed famous from the time period of the Judges to the New Testament. It stayed famous through the ministry of Micah. It stayed famous so that angels announced to shepherds in Boaz's field where he met Ruth about salvation for the world. Do you think God keeps this word? Verse 12. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. You know, if you didn't understand the culture... You would slap somebody for saying this to you. May your family line be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. May your family line be like a whore who slept with a father-in-law and produced a kid. I'd punch somebody in the face for saying that. They understood that we were moving ever closer to the redemption of the line of Perez in these actions. That's incredible.
4: So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive.
0: I had intended to uh, teach on this, and instead I'm just going to show it to you. Again, it'll be in your notes, because there's a limit to how long we can go and what you can remember. (laughs) (laughs) This is Ruth's social progression in the book of Ruth. In the second chapter and tenth verse, she calls herself a foreigner. That is a (laughs) nachriah. In the 2nd chapter and 13th verse, she calls herself a Shippah. This is a servant, but a servant who is not marriageable. uh, uh, The lowest kind of servant. Then in the 3rd chapter and ninth verse, as we discussed last week, she calls herself an ama. In the 4th chapter and the 13th verse, she becomes an Isha, a wife. Listen to me. You don't like your station now? Faithfulness always causes you to progress through the social ranks. See, God will cause your star to rise if you honor Him above all. If you don't like where you're at now, you stay at the foot of the table, faithful to the king, and He will move you to the head of the table. She showed up a foreigner, and she ends up a wife. She offered herself as a slave or a concubine, and she ends up a great-grandma of King David and Amen. in the lineage of Christ. Amen. What will God do with you if you are faithful? That's a good word. There is no family in here that cannot be redeemed. Amen. There is no situation that is hopeless. He is working down to the seven times seventh letter Amen. in your life. Amen. I can assure you, when I was reading this, I was sitting in a cigar shop because that's where all good things happen. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to the wickedness around me. And slowly, that demonic cloud of all that's been wrong this year was settling in on me. And I came across the 49-letter skip, and I became convinced that whether it involves miscarriages or defections or out-and-out warfare, down to the letter of our lives, God is working behind the scenes to bring about justice for those that He loves and love him. And I started getting excited and happy and dancing around. For I knew it, nine hours had passed. Nine. If you want to know how you stay in a cigar shop for nine hours, it involves more than one cigar and a Bible.
1: And I have a Bible already.
0: I got you back. OK. Let's go into Naomi now. Pastor, you kill that. We're going to have to wrap. We're at, hey, we're not that far in. It's an hour 50 minutes. We're doing great. The woman, verse 14, the woman said to Naomi, praise be to Yahweh, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Listen, who did the women see the kinsman redeemer as a kinsman redeemer for? Naomi. Naomi. She married Ruth but it's Naomi's kinsman-redeemer. Do you know why? Because Ruth had no obligation to any of this. Ruth gains a husband, but Naomi gains a redeemer. There's a lot of messages here, but I want to lean on you for what. You can call Jesus your Savior, but He's Israel's Savior before He's yours. He was killed by Israel for Israel. Naomi here represents Israel. Ruth represents you. We get wed to the Lord, and that was a surprise, but He was always their kinsman redeemer. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. And when you start caring more about their welfare, them being redeemed, than just you being wed to the Lord, you'll get both. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful story. You just got to dig in it a little. Okay. Uh, verse 15. He will renew your life, and sustain you in your old age. This at least is a hint at the restoration of Israel and Messiah, don't you think? When Paul says in Romans 11, if their rejection meant life for you, what will their acceptance be except life from the dead? I bet he was thinking about old Naomi. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi, this is, by the way, the first time that I can find or think of, or let me say, this, it's the first time it's occurred to me. Everywhere that the people of the town refer to her, everywhere. They call her a Moabitess yeah. until here. Because she's married yeah. to Boaz. Yeah. Whatever you were when G- Jesus wow. married you, you became him. Mm. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. She literally became, the Hebrew is very specific here, she became a nurse. But the word for nurse here is not wet nurse. I mean, there's two different words here. And what is very interesting is, she does not take the child, but she's credited with the child. It's like a credited (laughs) righteousness. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. This is why we go back and talk about Perez. This is where the family line went wrong. And they're bringing it all the way through to its redemption. Mm -hmm. It went wrong at Perez. It went right in King David's time. And who was the seventh son? Boaz. Isn't that awesome?
2: There's
0: a message in it for you. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nishan. Nishan the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Are you ready for seven observations about it? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. <clears throat> Number one. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, who I'm suggesting that in these observations, Ruth is like the Gentile grafted in church, and Naomi is like Israel. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. See, if Naomi never leaves Israel, you don't. She doesn't run into Ruth. One of the. Uh, terrible but true things is when Satan has attacked Israel and Israel has been unfaithful and they have been pushed out of their land the result of that was their Torah got brought into foreign lands. So Ruth finds out uh, about Naomi because Naomi comes to her land. It's a cry for missions. It's an acknowledgement that the things that have been difficult for Israel have been beneficial for you. Hmm. Number two. What the law was unable to accomplish through the near kinsman, Boaz accomplished. I would say that the near kinsman was an example of the law, and that Boaz was an example of the law living, breathing, walking. The near kinsman was the word in a written code, and Boaz was the living word. Amen. Number three. Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. This is symbolic of Jesus taking the penalty of the law for you in Colossians
2: 2.14.
0: He didn't <coughs> cancel the law. He didn't cancel the written code. He canceled the written code that stood opposed to to you. My point there is that Ruth had the obligation to go and settle this. But Boaz did it for her. And Jesus has settled the issue for you. Number four, I loved this. If you go back and examine the, the, the story very carefully, Ruth learns of Boaz's ways, his family line and name, through Naomi. Ruth, the Gentile church, learns about Jesus, Boaz, through Naomi's description. Whose field did you go glean in today? Why, oh, I gleaned in Boaz's field. Oh, bless the Lord, that man is a near kinsman of ours, and she begins to describe him. But in number five, Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. Naomi was describing a man she had never seen. Wow. Naomi was describing Boaz, but she hasn't met him in the story yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Naomi's telling all about Boaz because they're related, but she hasn't met him. Wow. Ruth meets Boaz before Naomi does, and Naomi is the one that explains more about Boaz. Wow. This is like Israel teaching yeah. you about Jesus without Israel knowing Jesus, and you introduce Israel to the Jesus they taught you about. I yeah. want well, y'all think I was lazy this week. <laughs> Number six. I want everybody to listen to this one carefully. I've become quite passionate about it. Ruth does not replace Naomi. Amen. Amen. Gentiles never replace Israel. That's That's excellent. Ever. Yeah. Number seven. This is a lot of fun. you remember that Boaz goes and he sees uh, the Moabites in the field and he's like... Uh, whose young Moabitess is that?
2: <laughs>
0: and a nameless foreman of the harvest
2: yeah.
0: introduces him like the Holy Spirit.
2: <laughs>
0: it, it's really, really cool. You could get the impression when Boaz starts offering her gifts and like dip your hand in this dish and those things that maybe, you know, he had intentions. Like Jen did when she first met me. God. <laughs> But he couldn't make the first move. And he couldn't make the first move for a lot of reasons. I went through those last week. For instance, if she said yes, where does that leave Naomi? It required Ruth to want him to be not a husband, but a kinsman redeemer for Ruth to provide for Naomi. Also, he's also Naomi's. Naomi's a widow. How would Naomi view it? I mean, they might be the same age. There's a lot of issues here. In the story, this is the seventh point. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, and I believe he loved her the first time he saw her, he had to wait for Ruth to ask him to cover her with the corner of the garment. No matter how much Jesus loves you, he will not redeem you until you ask him to. He's not going to. He's provided redemption, but He will not do it until you lay at His feet like someone dead
2: mm-hmm.
0: and say, cover me with the corner of your garment. Crazy. No hope. Yes. And if you're not willing to come to Him like Ruth with no rights,
2: mm-hmm.
0: under His covering,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and hoping for the redemption of Israel,
4: yeah.
0: then you can't come to Him. Yeah, good. So listen, this is not Hebraic Roots class. It's just part of my heart. Salvation apart from a love for Israel is incomplete. Yeah.
2: Wow.
0: It's just incomplete. Mm-hmm. I don't have an axe to grind. I don't have a weird Jewish name. I've never tested my uh, my blood, and I never will. I eat pork every day, <laughs> but I love Israel because I love Israel's Redeemer. Amen. Amen. And He is their Redeemer. So this this takes us to an interesting place. Well, we want to close with a couple of scriptures. In the temple that Solomon built, in the portico where you enter, 1 Kings 7, verse 21, he erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south, he named Joachim. And the one to the north, Boaz. Now, we have names up here, so I'm not going to write on this board. Let me just tell it to you. Yachim means he established. Boaz means in him is strength. When you keep that in mind, two names, two pillars, two is a covenant, two is a witness, two or more matters are things established. I want you to hear Revelation 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name, if, like Ruth, you overcome the God of Israel will become your God even as he became hers. His city will become your city even as Bethlehem became her city. And Jesus will marry you and give you his name even as Boaz married her and gave her his name. What is better? What is more? What is a blessing even beyond that? You will be one of two pillars in the temple. He is Boaz. Boaz. In Him is strength, and you are Yakin. He established. This is the testimony at the entrance of the temple. In Him is strength, and I am here because He established me. What a testimony. Amen. I love the book of Ruth. I hope you found it to be a romantic, redemptive story like I did. I have merely suggested... A few shadows and types here. You could search them out your whole life. We found in the names of the people, in the content of the chapter, in the culture that gave us the seasons, in the heptatic structure of the festivals, treasures. Secret stalks by the handful and bunchful. This is an example of one four-week study. Ten hours of teaching in 58 pages of notes. What would happen if you dedicated a lifetime to it? Could you not fill your house with treasures so that what Matthew 13.52 says would be true for you? That you could bring out of your storehouse treasures both old and new, to benefit others. We are trying to set an example of the expectation for your life. I love that you love us. I love that you enjoy our teaching. We want you to do what we do. That's the aim of this ministry. Would you all stand to your feet?